0: Church is called to live out our unity in Christ through love and care for another. Be saved to sin, no. My name is Phil. My wife and I are members of WSBC. It's My joy to bring you God's word this morning, joy and honor. So in the 1970s, the average birth rate of women, or fertility rate, the official term, in South Korea was over four. To be accurate, it was about 4.3 in 1970, just a little over 50 years ago, meaning that each family had an average of four to five children. Fast forward to 2023, to this year, and Korea now has the lowest birth rate in the world at 0.07, 0.7, less than one child for each woman. This has been a big topic of conversation in China the past few years, which in 1970, had a birth rate of average of 5.8 per woman. That means in 1970s in China, On average, each woman had around five to six children. Now in 2022, that number has dropped drastically to 1.2. This topic has been so prevalent that China, that their one child policy, which stood from 1980s for almost 30 years, in just the past seven years, they've had to amend it twice, right? And there are many theories to why the birth rate is decreasing not just in Korea, not just in China, but basically every modern region in the world. This is across all cultures, all nations, all modern nations, the birth rate has been decreasing drastically. Some some theories are it could be cost of living, cost of raising a child, more women needing to work because they need to support these costs. But one less spoken about theory which Derek Thompson from The Atlantic talks about, is this idea of workism, workism. You see, in the past, and I'm not talking about ancient history, 20 or 30 years ago, work was simply a means to an end. Something you did to put food on the table and to provide for your family. But now, work is more than just providing money or stability and paying the bills, right? Work has been about purpose. Now work is about finding meaning, right? Work is finding community, right? You want to hang out with your coworkers. You want to get to know them, right? Work is even about self-actualization. You find your identity through what you do. I remember early on in our marriage, Lena would tell me, I'm a designer. That's what I am, right? You can't take that away from me. That's how God made me. I'm a designer, right? This idea of workism, the idea, the theory of workism, is that, especially in America, where in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s, where religion was a place where you found your community, you found your purpose, you found your identity, that has now been replaced with work. That has now been replaced with work. Work is what drives us. It's the center of our world. Right? It's where we choose to live, who we choose to hang out with, and where we choose to spend the majority of our time throughout the week. And this is a very modern phenomenon. It's really only been the, the past 20 or 30 years. It's also why Paul does not really directly address this issue in First Corinthians in our text today. I don't think he could have foresaw a world where people put so much stock, so much of themselves into what they do, into what they do, right? But through our text today, we will be able to explore, or Paul is going to explore, the issues of what we as a people prioritize, what is important, what matters to us, how do we choose to spend our time, how do we choose to spend our money, and what motivates us, all right? So let's look at our text today. Our text today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It is in your bulletin, if you have one, real quick, on page 11, and if not, uh, if you don't have a bulletin, you can find it in your Bible. So I'll read it. First Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and store up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I tend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey, wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to spend more, some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. But be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And the churches of Asia send their greetings, Aquila, Pris- Prisca, Together with the church and their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the Word of God. As this this is the last chapter, In this letter let's recap a bit so Paul makes it clear in chapter 1 his purpose for writing this letter to the Corinthians in verse 10 he writes I appeal to you brother by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you agree that there be no divisions among you that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment that's his purpose for writing this letter and then throughout the letter he addresses various issues that are causing divisions among the church. Chapter one to three, arguments over leaders of the church, some were with Paul's faction, some were with Apollos, some were with Peter or Cephas. Chapters four and nine, he addresses the Corinthians questioning Paul's authority as a apostle, questioning his leadership, questioning how he speaks. In chapter five, he addresses sexual immorality occurring in the church, sexual sin occurring in the church. Step Six and seven, he addresses lawsuits and marital relationships. In 8 through 10, he addresses eating food sacrifice to idols. In 11 to 14, Paul addresses the issues of public worships and spiritual gifts. And previously, in the past few weeks, in chapter 15, which we went over, he addresses their doubts about the resurrection. So in our last chapter today, Paul gives some final reminders of remaining unified. Remaining unified, having unity among you. So for today, our main idea is that the church is called to live out our unity in Christ through love and care for another. The church is called to live out our unity in Christ through love and care for another. So the three points we'll be looking at through this text, and we're also going to kind of look at the entire book of Corinthians, as it's the last chapter, are point one. Unity in action. Unity in action. The second point, unity exhorted. Unity exhorted. And the last point, unity for God's glory. Unity for God's glory. So let's get to our first point, unity in action. So from verses 1 to 12 and 15 to 20, we have three actions that Paul reminds the church to maintain for their unity. And that, those are going to kind of be our subpoints points uh, for point one. Right? And I'm going to call them love actions, love actions. So actions you should do if you love Christ, if you love his word, right? if you believe in his word. All right? And our, so our three actions, our three love actions that Paul gives the, the instructions to, to the Corinthians are number one, giving, number two, spending time, and number three, submitting. And I'll go through them one by one. So giving in verses 1 to 4. Paul tells the church, the Corinthian church, to support the church in Jerusalem with a financial gift. Paul instructs the church to support the church in Jerusalem with a financial gift. We can see this in verse 3. I will send those whom you are credited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Alright. So first of all, we've got to ask why does this church need assistance? Why does the church need assistance? Well, from Acts 6, we know very early on in the church, the first church that was formed after Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, that and when they first elected deacons, that this church has a fairly big group of widows that needed financial support from the church. So in Acts 6 it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. But then further down in in Acts, in chapter 11, we find that the entire region, not just of Jerusalem, but of also Judea, was in the middle, in the middle of a great famine, right? And the church had already been distributing funds to these regions. So in Acts 11, it writes, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. All the world is that region. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So so that's the reason why they need assistance but especially as a Corinthian, you may be asking, well, why us? Why do we have to be the ones? Why is Paul asking us to to make this gift to them? Well, it wasn't just the Corinthians, right? He makes it very clear in verse one that he's also directed the church of Galatia to provide financial assistance. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, he also makes it clear that he's also asked the church of Macedonia to provide assistance to the saints and to Churches that need support, right? Paul is not just asking the Corinthians. He's asking, he wants all the churches to support one another. He wants all the churches to support one another. But he's asking the Corinthians specifically because they're a church that has been blessed with much. It's a port city, a key city for trade. So the church is in a healthy financial position. And because he starts this section, so in verse 1 we see, now concerning, right? we know that he's previously made this request to the Corinthians already. He's already asked them before, now he's asking again, to send, a, send financial assistance. And most likely, the Corinthians have sent a response of these questions. Why us? Why do we need to give? Right? And that's why he's addressing it a second time with them. Right? Paul expects the churches to support other churches financially, to show their love and care for one another. This is to know that each church is not just an individual entity, right? We're not just our own individual church, but they are unified, they're unified. We're all one church under Christ, under God, right? In Christ, right? We're all one church, we're not individual churches. So let's look at some, some others of Paul's specific instructions for giving, all right? So as this is a gift, this is not the usual customary collection in supporting the church of the saints. So this is not like what we would do now, collecting an offering, our, our weekly or monthly, however you give, our annual offering, right? This is not part of that. This is a separate benevolence gift, all right? This is an extra gift on top of the usual collection. Paul also wants them to be systematic about it, right? He wants them to, he's, he's asked them regularly to set aside money for once at the beginning of the week to, for support of brothers and system, sisters in need. He wants them to be systematic. He doesn't want it just to be willy-nilly, right? He wants them to plan it out, to essentially budget it, all right? Paul is also trying to be above reproach when he's handling the money. He does not want to handle it himself. He wants the Corinthians to give the gift he's just telling them collect it and say you send a representative to give the gift to the Church of Jerusalem right because he wants the Corinthian church themselves to bless the Jerusalem church and also be blessed by giving this gift right he's only willing to deliver the gift himself if the Corinthian church feels the need for Paul to go right and lastly his instructions on how much he's supposed they're supposed to give Well, they're only supposed to give as he may prosper, right? As he may prosper. So according to how much God has given each individual person. Paul does not want them to go into debt or to give away all their possessions so that now they are in need. No, he says according to as each person may prosper, set aside money and give this gift to those who are in need, who are suffering, who do not have enough for their daily food. So as we... As we talk about giving, tithing, money, right, allow me a small aside. Right? I do want to talk about the issue of tithing because I've been talking to this with various people the past three or four weeks preparing for the sermon, and I'm, I'm guessing that many of us here were taught that we need to tithe one-tenth to the church, right? We need to tithe one-tenth to the church, including myself. I didn't even grow up Christian, right? I didn't, I didn't believe Jesus until high school, yet the church that I went to, they said they were very clear. You need to give one-tenth to the church. I have no idea why churches still teach this. The word tithe is never mentioned in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament Levitical law. But even then, if the Israelites were following all of the laws of the tithes, according to the law, the actual amount they finally gave, whether it's not actually money, because oftentimes it was produce, meat, there were farmers, right? It would actually, and William, I think it was William who calculated this out to me, it was not 10%, but it came out to about 23.6%, 23.6%. I have no idea how they calculated or how he got that number, all right? In regards to how much we should be supporting the church or gifting brothers and sisters in need, The New Testament, once again, never mentions an amount, never mentions a tithe, all right? Instead, the New Testament talks about the focus of giving in the New Testament is on the attitude of the heart as an expression of your faith, all right? Rather than just a fixed percentage, all right? It's an attitude of your heart and your expression of faith. Jesus in Matthew 23 23 says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 67, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now I say this small aside is, for some of you, is as a challenge to what you might have been taught at your church, what you might have been indoctrinated since you were young, only 10%, no less, no more, only 10%, right? I challenge you to search your heart and give as Paul says that as he may prosper. Now, additionally, we also have to be careful. We also have to be watchful of any church or any authority figure, right? Especially if you've been to or have heard sermons from prosperity gospel preachers where they would say, you should give beyond your means because the more you give, the more God will give back to you, right? That is taking 2 Corinthians, what Paul has said, completely out of context. All right, that is taking it completely out of context. God will not always just multiply your gifts to the church tenfold. Right? He has not promised that. No, Paul has said, give according to what you've been given, according to what you prosper. Right? Remember And remember that all we have, everything we have, is a gift from God. He gives and he takes away. Right? He gives and it takes away. So One note, so back to the small side of tithing, Uh, one note about how the church or individual should exercise wisdom in knowing how and who to support, right? because a church and we all have to exercise wisdom in, in knowing when to give extra benevolence. right? First Timothy chapter five, I'm not gonna go through the entire thing, but it gives a lot of instructions that the church should examine the actual need of the person, and they should carefully examine their moral conduct before giving support. I say this because I don't want the application as you leave here to be, oh, I'm gonna start donating more to random charities, I'm just gonna, every homeless person I see on the street, I'm gonna give them money, or I'm just gonna be you know, making it rain wherever I go, right? If you feel the heart to support certain people or certain ministries, I encourage you to bring it to the church or bring it to other members so that they can share in the act of loving through giving. And that by that act of giving, we are demonstrating our unity in Christ. I would encourage you to bring it to other people. If you feel the heart to give extra gifts, to bring it to other people so they can share in it with you. Our second love action in this chapter is spending time with one another. Spending time with one another. We can see in verse 7, Paul plans to visit the Corinthian church. He says, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I don't want to just spend a little bit of time with you. I don't want to just pass by, but I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Paul intentionally plans out spending time with the church. He's doing this out of love for the people of the church. Timothy and Paul were the ones who established the Corinthian church. They are the founders of the church. They spent over a year with them, teaching them on the gospel, on the truth of the gospel, on who Jesus is. And he does long to see them. This is not a trip to go discipline them but he longs to see them he misses them brothers and sisters do you know the people in your church well enough to say i'm excited to see them right do you know the people in the church well enough to say i'm excited to see them so we're practicing days of the week with our son our oldest son cain and he's three and he loves saturday and sunday he loves saturday and sunday not because he has all this homework that he does Monday through Friday, right, and finally gets to rest. No, he has no homework, right? And that's because on Saturday, he gets to watch Paw Patrol, right? On Saturday, he gets to watch Paw Patrol. And if you ask him, what do we get to do on Sunday, immediately he'll respond, church, right? He is excited to be with the people that he loves. He's like, oh, will TT be there today? Will Ezra be there today? We get to go to church. Do you feel that same love and excitement when you go to church to see the people, to be in the community? Or is going to church just an obligation? It's just an obligation. It's just something you need to tick off the checklist. Oh, I'm a Christian. Check. I've gone to church this Sunday. But it's not, it's not where you go to want to authentically and genuinely connect and get to know people and spend time with them. To know them to the point where you can pray specific requests for them. You can give them tangible encouragements or even be able to correct people because you know that they're living in sin or they've sinned and you're able to correct them. Just attending church, just coming, is not actually living out your faith. Previously, when I preached in chapter 11, I talked about how faith is vertical. Right? Faith is vertical. It's between you and God. It's about dying to yourself daily and living for God, but it's also horizontal. It's also horizontal. We should be living out our faith by sacrificially loving, caring, and teaching one another. So from our scripture reading this morning on Revelations 2, we know that simply being a part of a church is not genuinely living out your faith. Right? Jesus admonished the church because they were faithful, especially in Ephesus, but no longer. That they need to return to their ways, or else Jesus will snuff them out. Right? We've come to church to grow in our understanding of God. Yes, that is one reason why we come to church, but it's also to be blessed by the love of the body and to bless others. And Paul expects the church, he says to the church, I expect you to help me on my journey. Paul's not just there to spend time and teach to them, he expects the church to bless him. As well lastly while making plans Paul seeks the will of the Lord though they are struggling with many issues he decides he's not going to go to the church immediately because he's he's gonna pass through Macedonia he's gonna take his time he's going by land it's a slow way right and that's because he saw a ministry opportunity in his current location of Ephesus so instead of relying on just his own desires he exercises wisdom and seeing the open doors that God has provided at the current time. So he's gonna stay there and come later where he can spend extended time with them, all right? So our second love action, spending time with each other, getting to genuinely know one another. Our third love action tonight, or this morning, is to submit, submit to those laboring for the Lord. This is in verses 10 to 12 and 15 to 18. Paul gives instruction on how to welcome Timothy who he has sent ahead of himself, right? And also gives instruction on how to, uh, on the household of Stephanus, who they're from the Corinthian church, they represented the Corinthian church in visiting Paul in Ephesus and are now returning or have already returned. But he's giving them instruction on on how to treat them. The the first question that, that really should come to anyone's mind is, why does Paul even need to remind them of this? right? Why does Paul need to remind the church to put Timothy at ease, to let no one despise them? Those are really weird warnings, right? Like it would be like if someone had to remind William, like, oh, William, when you see Phil this morning, do not punch him, all right? That would be such a weird warning to give William, right? But Paul instructs them to put Timothy at ease, let no one despise him, and help him on his way in peace. Because, well, the issue is, the, church, the Corinthian church knows that Timothy stands with Paul. He's Paul's protege. He believes in the same beliefs that Paul believes. And the church is already questioning Paul's authority. They already have issues with Paul, his ability as an apostle, his ability as a leader. Therefore, they're probably going to oppose those who associate with Paul and who associate with Paul's beliefs. So Paul tells the church to support Timothy, not out of his authority, not because I founded the church, not because I'm an apostle, right? He tells them to do this because in verse 10, Timothy is doing the work of the Lord. This is, this is why they need to, not despite, they need to love him, put him at ease, because he's doing the work of the Lord. So also in verse 16 with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, that he instructs them to be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. You see the word be subject here, all right, also means to submit. But in this context, submit does not mean to be obedient, to just listen to whatever the person says, right? So Paul, previous other, other writers have used um, this submit to mean obedience, forcing them to respect authority. Like in First Peter, Peter instructs, submit yourselves For the Lord's sake to every human authority. Or James, he says, submit yourselves then to God. Now when Paul is telling them to be subject, he does not mean be obedient to them. What he is saying is a yielding voluntarily in love. That they voluntarily yield themselves out of love for the other person. Paul writes something similar in First Thessalonians chapter five, when he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He's not just telling them to simply be obedient because they are apostles, they are doing the they are they are from God, but out of love for them, out of love for them, to submit to them, to to yield to them. The church is called to be unified by loving those who are laboring for Christ. The church is called to be unified by loving those who are laboring for Christ, by voluntarily yielding in love, knowing that we are all striving for the same mission. We're all striving for the same purpose. And that purpose is to be more like Christ and to share Christ with those that do not know him. Now the Corinthian church has a choice to make. They can welcome these saints back lovingly with gratitude for their sacrifice, for caring about the faith of the church, caring about the church enough to let Paul know their struggles and their sins. Or the church can be defensive. They can see these people as snitches, right? Or they can think, who's who's Timothy? Who's Paul? Who's Stephanus? Do they think they know better than us, right? How, brothers and sisters, how do you respond? When, how do you respond when a brother, when somebody else in the church is letting you know that your thoughts or your actions might have hurt them? Right. when somebody says, the way you talked to me or the way you said this, that really hurt me, Right. How do you respond? Do you, how do you take it when another believer tries to remind you that you're sinning, right? If a brother, if a brother or sister actually says, you know, and when you talked about this person that way, I, I felt I might have been gossiping a bit, right? How do you take it when they remind you that you are not living according to God's word? Do you get defensive? Do you blame shift? Do you respond with, well, what about you? Or what about this other person? They're doing the same thing too, right? Or do you just end that relationship, right? Do you just justify it by saying, you know, I've been a Christian longer than that person. I've been living a better life then that person, what do they know? Right? You just cut off that relationship. I'll go hang out with other people in the church, but not, but not this person anymore. Basically, they're thinking, I'm right and you're wrong. Right? We are called to love one another in truth. All right? We're called to love one another in truth, in gospel truth. This is not a puppy love where it's about chocolates, roses, and whispering sweet nothings. This love, kind of love, requires admonishment and discipline, like a parent who will lovingly remind their child when they're doing something wrong. Right? We're, we should be doing the same for one another because it is helping us to become sanctified. Right? It is helping us to become more like Christ. Right? When this happens, when somebody admonishes you so that you are and remind you to you need to live more like Christ all right try not to take it as an attack try not to take it as an offense and trust me I will be the first to admit right? I take it as an offense when Lena usually corrects me says Phil you know you were being a bit curt but short with this person I'll be the first to be defensive yeah oh, whatever you know I don't care what you said right Or 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 what about you when you talk to that person right I am the first I will admit my sins. I am the first to be defensive. But I'm encouraging you, try not to see it as an attack. Try not to see it as an offense. All right? Paul, like Paul says, instead of reacting this way, be subject to them. Yield to them out of love, knowing that they are doing this out of Christ's love for you. They're doing this because they love you, so that you can become more like Christ. And Paul himself demonstrates this attitude in verse 12 concerning Apollos. Paul says, I strongly urged him, Apollos, to visit with you with other brothers, but it was not his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. But because the sentence starts with now concerning again, just like verse one, we can infer that the Corinthian church had requested Apollos to come to them. And Paul also had a choice to make. He knew that there was a faction in the Corinthian church that was saying that Apollos was a better preacher, Apollos was a better teacher, he was more eloquent, more charismatic, maybe even better looking than Paul. We don't know, right? Paul could have responded with jealousy or anger, right? He could have been like, What? I'm Paul. Who are you to say, like, you want Apollos to come instead of me? Am I not good enough for you? Instead, Paul does the opposite. He, sh- he strongly urges. He says, Apollos, please go to the Corinthian church, right? Brother, go to them. You see, that's because to Paul, there is no division between him and Apollos. They are united in the Spirit, they're united in Jesus, and they are united in the labor for Jesus. So Paul also yielded to Apollos out of love, there was no hierarchy between the two of them. He yielded to Apollos out of love because they're both laboring for the same cause. He believed if Apollos can better reach the Corinthian church, if they will be more receptive to his teaching, then sure, you should go, Apollos. So like many pastors in history, throughout history, Paul could have identified his ministry and the church as his work. He could have been possessive about it. Right? this is my work I've poured countless hours into this church right I've done so much for them I know all of their stories right he could have become possessed with it like like Schmigo Oh my precious right and I see this with teaching so I am I'm a teacher I see this with teaching all the time a teacher spends a ton of time developing a curriculum planning lessons, right, finding videos, finding fun activities. Then suddenly this new teacher comes along who's going to teach the same subject. And instead of putting in the same work, they're like, yo, can I just get all the things that you used? Can I just have all the materials that you've developed? Right? And there are many teachers I know who would just say no because this is my possession. I built this up. I've spent so much blood, sweat, and tears on this. You can't have it, right? Right? Now, if Paul viewed this ministry and the church that way, Apollos is the last person he would want to send to Corinth. But he doesn't view it that way. Instead, Paul backs up his words that he said earlier in chapter 3 and when addressing this issue of the various leaders. Paul says, What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He backs up his own words by strongly urging Apollos to go. But Apollos decides it's not his will to go right now. Now it's unclear if Paul means Apollos's will or God's will, but nevertheless, Apollos has decided he will come when opportunity arises. And Paul demonstrates his unity in Christ by yielding in love to his fellow workers. He doesn't force Apollos to go. He could, right? He could be like, no, I think you should really go right now, right? You could really instruct him, use his authority. But he's yielded in love. If this is what you or God has decided, then sure, you, you can go at your own time, right? He shows no jealousy. He shows no divisiveness. He does not use his authority. He does not abuse his authority, right? Paul knows that the church the body, all its people in the church and all the laborers in the church belong only to God. They do not belong to Paul. So be unified by being subject to one another, by yielding in love to one another. All right, let's move on to our second point. Unity exhorted. I promise my first point is longer than all the rest. In verse 13, Paul gives four imperatives. Four imperatives. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Now let's let's examine these imperatives in context, right? First, be watchful. Paul uses this imperative in other letters as well, urging watchfulness in light of the return of the Lord, right? Be ready for when Jesus comes again. And there are other times he urges watchfulness in regards to Satan. Be aware of the attacks of the evil one. Or there are, And there are other times where he says be watchful in, in relation to corrosive influences in the church, like he does in Acts twenty thirty one. 31 right? From the t- context of this entire letter, we know that it's the second imperative, that he's saying be watchful of sinful or corrosive divisive influences within the church. It's clear that he's reminding them that there are people or issues that will cause divisions. So we need to be, be watchful. The second imperative, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. Paul is repeating this reminder from chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse one, he says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And at the end of chapter 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord. Right? So this is connected with the first imperative. He's not just in general saying stand firm in your faith. He's saying stand firm in the truth no matter if what other people are saying. If you know what the truth is, if somebody's saying something contrary to it, stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in your faith. The last two imperatives, act like men. And he's not just saying act like men. It's actually a direct translation from the Greek meaning Right? The Greek meaning t- uh, to be brave, right? Be brave. He's saying be brave and then the fourth imperative, be strong. Paul is giving this reminder to outs- not to outside forces of persecution, but he's calling them to courage and to remain steadfast in the gospel he preached in the face of errors and sinful behaviors within the church, right? He's telling them to stand firm, be watchful, be brave, be strong, not from outside persecution, which they were receiving. All right? But he's staying within the church also to do these things. So in verse 14, he, his four imperatives are calling the church to remain faithful to the gospel, especially when people are teaching something counter to the gospel. And then in verse 14, he says, Let all that you do be done in love, which now he's focusing on relationships with one another. He's, focusing on, he's reminding them to do all things in love, echoing the reminders in previous chapters 12 to 14. And when Paul states all that you do, he does not literally mean every single thought and action. This is the danger of taking Scripture out of context. When he says all that you do, he's not meaning like, well, when you eat breakfast, when you brush your teeth, do it out of love, right? What he means is <coughs> sorry, there is a He is referring to the various issues that have been brought up. He's already brought up all these various issues throughout this letters. And in these issues, that they should do all things out of love. Whether it's quarreling with leaders, about the leaders, bringing lawsuits to one another, not taking care of those who are hungry during the Lord's Supper. If they had approached all these issues that Paul states in this entire letter, with the love of Christ many of these issues would not be happening. Many of these issues would not be happening. And now we get to our final point, unity for God's glory. Unity for God's glory. Paul concludes this letter with greetings from those in Ephesus, and then he also concludes with a benediction. And this is pretty standard for conclusions, right? He usually gives final greetings with whichever church he's at, this time, Aquila and Prisca, because he's in Ephesus, and they're in Ephesus with him. And for his benediction, in verse twenty-one, Paul wants the Corinthian church to know the urgency for unity. He wants the Corinthian church to know just how urgent, just how important it is that they be that they unified. Because he starts by he starts that part of the letter by letting them know that he's writing this final greeting himself. He's writing this final greeting himself because. For most of his letters Paul has a scribe right for him because you remember it's not like pen and paper but it's papyrus right so it would be hard to to write at that time and Paul there's some scholars say Paul was notorious for having really bad handwriting right but now he's taken the pen himself and he's writing with his own hand calling for unity and he starts his final greeting with a warning if anyone has no love for the Lord let him be accursed, let him be accursed. Once again, this is not a general anyone. He's talking specifically to the factions in the Corinthian church who are against him and against the gospel. He's talking specifically to the factions of the Corinthian church, right? Who who are not heeding his words. But he makes it clear that it's not about obeying him. It's not about obeying Paul, it's about obeying Christ. If they do not heed his warnings, they are deviating from the gospel and choosing human wisdom over the gospel of the crucified one. They are therefore rejecting Christ and to be accursed. The Greek word for that uses anathema, or to be excluded, to be excluded from the hope of reconciliation with Jesus. All right? And then finally, Paul concludes his letter with grace and love from, grace and love from both him and Jesus. So as we finish off this entire letter, as we finish off all of 1 Corinthians, I think there are two questions that we really need to consider, right? Looking at the context of this full letter to the Corinthian church, there are two questions that we really need to ask. The first is, why is unity so important? Why does Paul stress unity so much to the Corinthians? Well, that's because unity is God-ordained. God-ordained unity. God decided to create the church and the unity of it so that Christians can stand firm in their faith together to the end. To the end, right? Ephesians 4 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, not create, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God created unity, not man, not the church. He created and ordained it for the church to be unified. We're only to maintain it. We're to maintain the unity that God created. Philippians 2, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy paul's joy jesus joy by being of the same mind having the same love being of the same mind and the truth and the gospel having the same love being in full accord and of one mind I'm repeating that again one mind so if we brothers and sisters wsbc if we claim to have accepted jesus if we claim to love jesus if we claim to be filled with the holy spirit we need to be unified in gospel truth and with love for one another. It's not just an individual relationship. It's horizontal as well. And the second reason why unity is important, well, because not only did God ordain unity, he also ordained disunity. Disunity is also ordained by God. He causes it, he, oh, sorry, he does not cause it. Let me repeat it again. He does not cause it, but he allows it to happen for a reason. Jesus himself describes in Matthew 24, saying to the disciples, "'See that no one leads you astray, disciples, "'for many will come in my name, saying, "'I am the Christ,' and they will lead many astray.'" Now Jesus is ordaining that this is going to happen, right? Many false teachers will come claiming to know Jesus or to be followers of Jesus and will lead many astray. And then he continues in verse nine, "'And then many will fall away "'and betray one another,' meaning Christians Brothers claiming Christians will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That many is not non believers, it is believers. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is ordained by God, and by Jesus, that believers will betray other believers many will be led away from their faith. And the love of man in the church, the church's love, will grow cold. But, WSBC, we can hold onto the truth and continue to love one another. We can continue to love one another and we will be saved, right? Paul agrees with Jesus that disunity is ordained because in this very book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. He, ex- he, he expects divisions. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be, mechan- may be recognized. This unity is ordained by God to separate the wheat. From the chaff to know those who are genuinely following Jesus and those who do not and that will be revealed that's why unity is <coughs> unity is important the second question and concluding statements is what bigger purpose does God have for unity what is the purpose of unity right why does he want the church to be unified John 13, 34, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And by this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Meaning, by this, the world will know that you are Christians, and they will know who Jesus is by how we love one another. God's purpose for the unity of the body is that those who do not know Jesus will see our Christ-given love and they will know who God is. doesn't mean they will accept, but they'll know who God is by how we love each other. John 17, 21, later on in John, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, "'I do not ask you,' speaking about believers, "'that you take them out of the world, "'but that you keep them from the evil one. "'Just protect them from Satan. "'Keep them in the world, but protect them from Satan. "'They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. "'Sanctify them in the truth. "'Your word is truth.' As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do, not ask these, I do not ask for these only, but also that those who believe in me may, through the word, that they may all be one. They may all be one. They may be unified, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may also be us. But because Jesus and God are unified, he also wants the church to be unified. And, and, and lastly, he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the church reflects the unity of Jesus and God so that the world, those who do not know him, may believe in him. You see, non-Christians, when they come to church and they're turned off or turned away from the church, it's not because of doctrinal differences. It's usually not because of doctrinal differences. In fact, most non christians non-believers, they can understand when church is split because of doctrinal differences, right? If there are differences in core beliefs, they can understand, oh, okay, yes, you probably shouldn't be worshiping together. No, instead, non-believers, they're turned away when there are disagreements among the church, and instead of loving one another, we choose to judge them. We choose to cut ourselves off from that person. We even choose to leave the church because I feel, you feel like people or certain persons in the church is unlovable. They're not worthy of your love. These judgments and disagreements usually are not doctrinal. They're usually personal. They're usually cultural. They're differences in upbringing. Things like how we spend our money, how we raise our kids, how we want to care for, how we want to be loved, or how we want to care for and love others. Brothers and sisters, this is how God has chosen to use the church's unity. He's chosen to reveal the glory of who he is by how the church loves and cares for each other in gospel truth. He's chosen to reveal who he is through the love of the church in gospel truth. This past Thursday evening, my father suddenly passed away most likely from a heart attack. We didn't schedule autopsy, so we won't know. Lena and I hurried to the hospital, right, as his body was being sent back from Jaxing, where he was vacationing for the holiday. And when his body finally arrived, it took about an hour to complete his death certificate. Right? So we had a lot of time to process the situation. Lena was with my dad's body. I was with his wife, trying to comfort her. And do you know what topics never came up? What topics we never discussed? We never discussed things like, you know, what's going to happen to his company? What's going to happen to his business? How about his money? How about his various assets, his properties? We never talked about, oh, did he love his job? Did he, how much did he care about his job? Did he work hard? Right? None of that mattered to his wife, who I've never heard speak. I've known her since I was in college right I've never heard her speak a word of religion even though I've talked to her about Christianity she just doesn't respond all right yet in this moment what did she want to talk about for her who's someone I've literally never talked about religion or the afterlife before all she wanted to talk about was she hopes that he was happy when he passed and that maybe he can resurrect or maybe he can go to some sort of afterlife and he can be happy there. Or if he resurrects, he can be happy in that second life. All right. Somebody who has never spoken about a sentence, a word of religion, the past almost 20 years I've known her, this is what she wanted to talk about in this situation. And what about for me? Did I think about what he was like as, like as a father, how successful of a business person he was? No, my only thoughts were, man, I wish I had shared the gospel with him more. I wish that I had encouraged him to come to church more. I wish that he had spent more time together, not just with our family, but with this church family. Sorry. And that's the thing about death. It puts life into perspective. All the things that you prioritize, that you think are so important day to day, They mean absolutely nothing. If you are here today and you do not believe in Jesus, I want to ask you, what are you actually living for? What do you think will happen to you or to your family after this life is over? If you think that there's more, there must be more than than just this life, that there must be more to life than just money, success, having fun, being happy, then I challenge you to seek out Jesus and to come ask me, or any member of WSBC about Jesus after my sermon today. Now, there may be some of you who've had experiences, negative experiences with Christians or in churches, and you've been hurt in those experiences. Now, I want to apologize for that. But I also want to learn more about your experience. So I invite you to come and share with me, and we can talk about it. But brothers and sisters who do know Christ, I urge you to search your heart and take a long look at your life. Are you living in a way where people can actually tell you're living for Christ? Or do you focus and worry so much on work, on relationships, on security, on health, on the future of yourself, on the future of your family, that no one can tell you apart from a non-Christian? Right? No one can tell that you're different from anyone else in this world, that your thoughts and your actions are no different as a result of your love and your trust for Jesus. If you're a Christian, the world should be able to recognize that you are free from the enslavement of sin and the burdens of this world because you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for Christ. And if not, I also invite you to come talk to me afterwards. But I wanna give you the same encouragement that Paul gave The Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you've ordained both unity and disunity in this world and in this church, in the church. So that both believers and non-believers will know who you are. And the believers, their faith will be tested with disunity. So that those who are remained unified to the end will be in heaven with you together. And will experience your glory forever. So Father, we pray for the brothers and sisters of the church to not make light of disunity, Father. To not make light of it, Lord. But to be unified in the truth through love with one another. The love that you've given us. The sacrificial love of Jesus. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.